so you've previously noted that your work largely relates to the operation of unjust power and how it is produced and perpetuated and the discourses that help legitimize and normalize it. Uh, I'm wondering if you can comment on how that principle in a concrete way has animated the work that you've done and the way in which the trajectory of your career has unfolded. I started with, my doctorate was on thinking about the wrongness of discrimination, why discrimination is wrong and what, if anything, should the law do about it. And that was my research broadly, uh, f my research focus for the first five or six years uh, after my doctorate. And I'm currently working mainly on democracy and democratic institutions. Yeah. And they're both animated by, by a concern for those who are excluded from societal and political systems. It's, um, the reasons are in part biographical, in part my political education. But uh, so, so in, in, in terms of choice of areas to work on, I suppose that's been the most directly affected uh, part of my work, but also the other things that I do besides my scholarship. So my work with these two groups in India, the uh, a group called Increasing Diversity by Increasing Access, and another one called Access to Legal Education by Muslims, mm -hmm. um, both of which focus on access to law schools by underprivileged kids, mm -hmm. no kids are probably growing up like I did um, without the benefit of not just a good high school education, but also absence of information about the possibilities that exist. You know, I found out about law school because this visiting city cousin passed on the prospectus to me, one, one that she did not need anymore. So. So it's, you know, if, if chance can play such a big role in changing lives, then, then creating that possibility of chance and more lives by, by, by providing information, by training kids who are... So I'm, I'm in, involved in these groups largely um, through, uh, as in an advisory capacity. Uh, the other project that, that I'm very in, invested in is um, is the Indian Law Review, which is a an academic-led peer-reviewed journal in Indian law that I started with a few colleagues about three years ago. And again, the motivating idea behind it is, is Foucauldian, the idea that knowledge is power, and, and that the highest, best exposition of knowledge is one way to, to question power and to challenge it and to change it for the better. So you've made a seminal contribution in shaping our understanding of anti-discrimination law. Uh, what do you regard as your most 
significant interventions in this area of law? In terms of intellectual outputs, I think uh, my 2015 monograph titled A Theory of Discrimination Law is is probably what I would consider most significant. Uh, in terms of impact, so, so I, I, I often write for different audiences differently. Uh, a lot of my scholarly work is then translated, as it were, by myself in popular columns, uh, in newspaper op-eds for a wider readership. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, I think, that there are two key um, impacts that I'm quite uh, pleased with. The first was the adoption of my recommendations on how to approach the problem of discrimination in constitutional law by the Indian Supreme Court in a landmark judgment in 2018. Um, Now, it still remains to be seen how that jurisprudence develops because future courts will have to build upon it, but at least it's a good start. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I'm quite uh, happy with is uh, I worked on on, on a comprehensive anti-discrimination bill with an Indian MP uh, who presented it in Parliament in 2017. Indeed, Shashi Tharoor, yeah. It didn't get passed, Mm -hmm. which is a shame, but it it did generate quite a bit of civil society debate and is currently used as a pedagogic tool uh, by some teachers in Indian universities. Uh, I know that there have been other efforts modeled on that bill. So, So it has made a discursive impact, even if it's actual political realization is still a a distant dream in India. You've also noted that another thing that deeply saddens you is human potential remaining unrealized due to one's immediate circumstances. Uh, Has the work that you've done in the area of anti-discrimination law, to what extent has that been connected with or linked to this sad reality? I think Personally, the the realization came a lot before I went to university. Um, I grew up listening to stories from my mother about her dreams as a small girl growing up in a very patriarchal family. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them remained unrealized, but the remarkable woman did instill her own ambitions um, and and lent some of her potential to her children. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, I think my father, um, with with an amazing brain that he has, could have done with with a better education than he managed. So. Um, in, in, in my own biography where uh, m- my mom was sharp enough to realize that that while she could not afford uh, an excellent education for her kids, uh, she, she needed to to, teach, to to ensure that we learned English because that was the language of power, so she sent us to the missionaries. Um, 
locally who would teach you English f for very little. And, and, the, and the various chance moments, serendipities in my life, which, which opened doors which would have remained firmly shut uh, if things had gone only slightly differently. Like mm. if I visited my cousin the day later or, or two hours later, for example. So, um, so I'm very deeply aware of, of what human beings are capable of and how many of them end up not realizing their potential because, because of all types of limitations of class and gender and religion and sexuality and disability. Um, in race and 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 all these other um, things that hold us back, back. So, so it was that biographical insight that motivated my work in discrimination law, and and a lot of my ideas in discrimination law seek to unravel precisely those human bottlenecks. So, uh, so absolutely, yes, my work, m my intellectual work, has been very deeply connected with with my um, concern about unrealized human potential. You said in a previous interview that you try to ensure that the, uh, that the activist in you gets to choose only the areas or the topics that you want to conduct research on, and it is the scholar who must then actually conduct the research. So can you just expand on what you mean by this and the second part to this question is, uh, don't you think that one's lived experiences and experiential expertise can play a role not just in identifying problems, uh, as you seem to suggest in this uh, quote, but also in, in finding solutions to those problems? So the distinction between the activist and the academic is not the same as, as a distinction between being subjective and being objective. Mm -hmm. right. So both the activist and the academic are parts of me. They're both shaped by my own experiences. Um, and and there's no way of divorcing either of them from, from who I am. The difference is this. The activist is primarily concerned with what to do. That's his focus, his practical. Mm -hmm. The academic, first and foremost, is theoretical. The ac academic needs to know what he should believe. Right, and it's the distinction between the doing and the believing that, that in my mind is key. So the activist revels in certainties and the scholar has doubts. And unless reined in by the academic, the activist can sometimes be a bit, bit too sure. Mm -hmm. So that is why when starting a research project, I allow the activist to choose the topic so that I remain motivated in a I, you know, being interested in what you work on is extremely important to me. I, can, I cannot do anything that I don't find interesting. That, that to me, is, is the f primary um, factor in choosing what I do. Mm -hmm. 
But after I've chosen a topic for research, the scholar sets aside preconceived certainties and opens up the distinct possibility of being wrong. And genuine scholarship is impossible if that possibility is entirely foreclosed. I can give you an example. Um, so after, you know, when I was thinking about making a transition from discrimination or to something else, I started thinking about uh, several topics. One of the topics I wanted to work on was on, on a few provisions in the Indian Constitution which liberal progressives like me see as constitutional embarrassments in an otherwise progressive constitution. So these provisions uh, concern a call upon the state to to prohibit mm -hmm. cow slaughter, to prohibit the consumption of alcohol, to um, and they have a sectarian tinge to them. Um, they seem to be motivated by majoritarian notions. And and I, the activist in me, wanted to write a paper um, suggesting that these provisions are constitutional mistakes. They should be taken less seriously. So I started working on it because the activist was interested in the question. Mm -hmm. As it were, the enterprise was meant to be to, to tidy up, to clean up the Constitution, to, mm -hmm. to say that we should care more about the more progressive uh, aspects of the Constitution, less about these seemingly sectarian bits, right? Mm -hmm. When the scholars started researching the question, went back to the historical debates, what he found was that these these provisions were the price the progressives paid to secure a broad consensus around the constitution to get all sorts of groups who may not have agreed with the broadly liberal institutional framework that the constitution was designing and yet signed up to it because of these few minor concessions. And it turned out, at least, to the academic, it seemed that these were not constitutional embarrassments. These were constitutional triumphs. They allowed a broad take-up of the Constitution, allowed it to be passed by near unanimity rather than by a winner-take-all majority, mm -hmm. um, and, and I think guaranteed its stability for a very long time, which may not have happened if these compromises were not made. So, so that's one concrete way in which the activist was proven wrong by the academic. So there's been a, a perceptible shift in the nature, in the areas that you seek to work on or the questions that you explore um, in recent years uh, from anti-discrimination law to focusing more on the role of political parties and structural questions about the manner in which constitutional democracies operate. Uh, can you comment on the factors that have triggered this, this shift in your focus and your own reflections on it? Sure. So when I finished my first book in 2015, you know, the first time author, you have no idea whether what you have done is any good at all. You know, there are days when you think this is fantastic, 
in the days when you think this is complete rubbish. The reviews are still a few months away. And, um, and then before the reviews come in, some requests start trickling in, requests to write a book chapter on discrimination law by somebody who's seen your book and tells you, oh, I saw your book, really liked it. Would you, would you, would you do a chapter mm-hmm. modeled on your chapter six, for example? Or would you write this piece for, an, uh, uh, for this website, et cetera? Right? And now, for, for a first-time author, these requests are extremely flattering very first uh, endorsement of your work. Mm-hmm. So they're very welcome. And I said yes to the first four of these requests. Mm-hmm. They also, they're sold as low-hanging fruits. And you think, well, if I only need to change my existing chapter a little bit, it wouldn't take me a very long time to do it. So mm-hmm. A, it's flattering. B, it's not a lot of work. So you accept them. Having accepted the first four, four of these requests, the penny dropped. Mm -hmm. And I realized that this is how I will become that scholar who never produces original work again. It's very easy to get trapped in the cycle of generating more work, which is largely recycled Mm -hmm. from your previous work. And that is when I made a promise to myself to not write on the area academically until I had something genuinely new to say. So, mm-hmm. look, I still do a lot of translation work in, in public media and newspaper columns. I still engage with discrimination law politically and as a policy matter. But, um, but most of the academic recycling had to stop. Uh, it was... It's, it was really killing my creativity. And, and that is when I started thinking about new ideas and topics. And this was a time when it was still, uh, Trump's election was still a year away and, and the world had not become interested in democracy. It was still the Hungarians and the Poles and, and the Indians talking about democratic decline um, in 2015. So that is when I started thinking about a project on constitutional democracy and focusing on that, uh, mm-hmm. of course, with with the events since it's become a much broader global concern. But but that was the main reason for the shift, to do something new and exciting and original and, and to my mind, uh, interesting. Hmm. Uh, so my last uh, uh, sort of topic that I wanted to talk about with you is the current state of legal academia and the state of the law more generally. Um, and since the time I came to Oxford, my, my own experience has been that uh, legal academia um, is generally broadly can be broadly divided into two categories. This may be oversimplistic and I would love to hear if you think so. But on the one hand, you know, there are legal academics who have and are making a genuinely impactful contribution to advancing our understanding of the law in terms of asking interesting questions, finding useful patterns in cases, and suggesting ways in which the law should evolve going forward. On the other hand, um, I think there are some who, uh, who find solutions in search of a problem and, uh, you know, 
tie themselves into knots about issues that do not have uh, practical consequences or or look at issues in a way that are untethered to sort of real world conditions so if you are, first of all i would like to know if you agree with this portrayal and then if you do to what what are the ways in which you think academics can ensure that their work is more closely tied to the way the real world operates i believe that the main object of scholarship is the pursuit of knowledge and truth and that is its own prize scholarship operates fundamentally by peer criticism the only way to enhance and further knowledge is by criticizing the work of our peers and having our own work scrutinized and criticized by our peers so i i do not accept um the characterization that scholars who as it were merely criticize are somehow engaged in a lesser form of scholarship in fact i i i think it can be quite damaging to the academy to to demand utility from it and this this may seem surprising coming from me given given the paths that my own work has taken but i think um that governments today have led the agenda of demanding impact and utility from the academy and that has had very uh serious consequences for the academy including the squeezing out of humanities in particular but also so um so i think knowledge is its own reward and we cannot really ever prejudge what is relevant knowledge and what isn't i think that uh, what people do with that knowledge and the scholarship should largely be up to them the academy institutionally is designed to give scholars a protected uh insulated time deep time to to ponder over questions any question about knowledge about human knowledge um which they may in concert with their fellow colleagues um through their criticism we are only we are the, perhaps the only profession where people go out of their way to get funding for and to secure the criticism of their peers you know no other profession invites people to come and criticize their own work and i think i think that's there's a huge value in that and sometimes you know and this is this is sort of besides the point but sometimes we don't always see the value uh and relevance of any of some parts of knowledge before um before some time has elapsed so mm-hmm. so there is there's deep danger in in requiring academics to prove the worthiness of what they are doing um they should they should be left to to pursue any knowledge for its own sake my final question to you is um as a man of the law as as a person in the legal profession today uh speaking in very broad and general terms what is the one thing that uh gives you hope about the rule of law uh and legal academia today and what is the one thing that causes you despair 
Right, there's so many in both categories, but let me choose one. So despair, um, I think institutional decline mm -hmm. is what makes me despair. Uh, and also the lack of popular support, seemingly at least, in many established, long-established democracies for institutions. All our cultures celebrate individual heroes, you know, whether it be religion, Hollywood, superhero comics, national myths. We love the Messiah, the individual who will come and save us all. Right. We haven't invested enough in institutions. We haven't defended their role and their processes, which are often slow and incremental and thoroughly unheroic. But, but societies and polities cannot flourish without robust, boring institutions, and, and that makes me despair. Um, what gives me hope is the resistance of ordinary folk around the world in the face of creeping authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. To give one example, um, you know, over a million people in the eastern Indian state of Assam are facing statelessness. And in a context where institutions have been hollowed out by a vindictive government, undergraduate law students from across the country have launched a nationwide program to provide legal aid mm -hmm. to these people. That gives me hope right, that if 20-somethings can find the courage to stand up for the most desperate and the most destitute against against a powerful state, um, then all is not lost. Mm -hmm. I think that is quite uh, a wonderful note on which to end what has been uh, a truly enriching and edifying conversation for me. Uh, and, uh, and I'm confident our listeners will think that way too. Uh, so thanks very much, Professor Ketan, for taking time out uh, to have this in-depth conversation with us. Thank you, the pleasure has been mine.